IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be looking back at 2011 and revisiting some of that year's most notable albums. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? <laughs> you know, Steve, I, I, I don't know if it's like my age or my tastes or maybe the pandemic destroying all the frame of references, which I've used for so many years to talk about like music. But I, I don't know. There are just like some days where I think, do I really have anything to contribute to move the conversation in music like do i Whoa, have anything relevant heavy. to say i know it's it's are you like are you like staring into a mirror right now with like uh yeah th- th- this seems like a come to jesus moment here just to, <laughs> opening the show going into the abyss immediately yeah I mean, this is like I we do like I've said before. We do the show right when I wake up, and these are the thoughts that plague me, uh, oh, you know, through those dark those dark nights of the soul. And I do go through sometimes like hours, days, sometimes even like weeks of feeling this way. And then, and then something like the new Black Midi single happens, and yes. then I just jump right into action. This sounds like Primus. I yes. am. More prepared than damn near anyone else to have the conversation about Primus's retconning in the indie conversation. And then I'm back in business, man. The Primusance. The Primusance may be, may be upon us <laughs> here in, in 2021. Because, yeah, we're in this post-pandemic. Well, I shouldn't say post-pandemic. Nah. Yeah, but we're, we're looking ahead to that. We don't know what, what the world's going to be like. Up could be down. Down could be up. Primus could become a, a core influence on uh, indie rock as we know it. I like the idea of like 22-year-old music writers looking up sailing the seas <laughs> of cheese in their yeah. streaming platform and listening earnestly to this in order to uh, draw a connection between this and Black Midi. Sailing the Seas of Cheese, by the way, uh, which, is that the first Primus album? I feel like that's like the first one that I remember. Yeah, that's like the that's like the first. I think that's the one with uh, is that the no pork soda's got my name is mud if I'm not mistaken. That's the one with Jerry as a race car driver. Either way, I th- the big brown beaver song I think is on. No, the that one. is so, that is from Tales from the Fishbowl. Like, uh, <laughs> and, and here's you the were, thing, man. Like, I, I don't. You were like, so I, fast I, with that. <laughs> my God, that was like the quickest draw in the West. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Like, I I own several. Primus CD somehow, like most people did, and I never listened to them. So it's like, it's just amazing, like how much detritus of the alt rock era I'm able to maintain. Do I like Primus? Not really, but it's it's just I kind of gauge new music, particularly with rock music, on its ability to like integrate stuff that isn't already canonized. And that's you know my problem with a lot of the post punk that Black Mini gets like lumped in with. It's you know. The Fall, Gang of Four, like the stuff that's been canonized like through like over and over again throughout the past 30 and 40 years. But now it's like, oh, we're ready to have a Primus conversation. Cool. I'm down for this, even if I'm never going to listen to this more than twice. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're a band that I think I like them, but I'm the same way as you. I never listened to Primus. And I think if you were to put on a Primus album, I would be excited at the beginning. So I'm like, oh, we're going to listen to Primus. There's something, uh, 
fun and and funny about listening to Primus, but then probably within five minutes, I would feel like okay, I'm I got it. Yeah, I got I'm it. Good. I, I, yeah, I, I I got the vibe here, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very curious to hear the rest of this Black MIDI record. I'm I'm, I'm curious if uh, maybe Les Claypool is actually on the record. You know, maybe he makes a guest appearance and lays some ridiculously com- complex like bass lines on the record. I think that'd be amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, maybe there'll be like a Pitchfork Sunday review on Pork Soda or Sailing the Seas of Cheese. Sailing the Seas of Cheese turns 30 this year. Oh, jeez. Which is incredible. <laughs> now, now I'm back staring at the abyss again. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's crazy. Sailing the Seas of Cheese approaching middle age, like the ultimate yeah. just dirtbag 90s teen album uh, is, <laughs> is now approaching middle age. Um, another album I have not listened to is the new Justin oh. Bieber album. And okay. I, I just wanted to bring this up because it's called Believe. <laughs> and no, apparently... it's, it's called it's called Justice. <laughs> oh, it's called Justice. That's right. Okay. What did I think it was called Believe? Because like Justice is like a way funnier. Because, because it because Believe is also kind of a, a bit of a you know a twist on his name because like you know, oh, Justin yeah. Bieber, Justice, and Believe, you know, like the Believer. So yeah, I, I see where you're coming from on that. Okay. Is I mean, is there a Justin Bieber album called Believe? I feel like there is. I I don't know. I I could be totally wrong. I I am not up on my Bieber. Yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, we are I, not to the degree I am with Primus. Sorry. <laughs> so really, you know, Justin Bieber, it is a name that resembles the phrase "justice believe." It's like yeah, if you huh. or believe in ju- believe in justice. That's so That's profound. Right. Um, but this is an album that I uh, I have not heard, and I'm determined mm. not to ever hear. Um, because I only want to experience it through Twitter. I've only experienced it oh. like from what people have said about it. And sometimes it's fun, I find, to have big pop cultural things that you know you're never going to watch or listen to, but you just experience them through like social media. I kind of like to have a couple things like that, uh, <laughs> you know, around. And, and the Bieber album is it for me. Apparently, he samples Martin Luther King. Uh, and who, who 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 among who among us haven't done that on our big pop album? You know, I mean, it's like not even you two did that. You know, like I feel like you two that was there for them. Yeah, you know, at some point, I mean, they wrote songs about Martin Luther King. Um, probably around the same, probably around the time that they were like Justin Bieber's age. Now, there's like a certain kind of like earnest young white man who, in his mid twenties, <laughs> just starts quoting Martin Luther King all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I everything about this album that I've heard is hilarious. Uh, so that's why I just want to experience it through social media. I feel like I feel like it's people are like take like there was the initial like oh look at him he's suff- he's uh, sampling MLK like ha 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 what and then people have kind of come around on the can't beat him joint if you can't beat him join him sort of thing. It's like no actually you know what this he's pretty good as far as like you know reliable pop stars go. You know we can do a lot worse. It's that. <laughs> familiarity you start to see i think with uh certain artists where um you know whether or not like the music is good like if you hear it in the supermarket it's like yeah this isn't so bad i i have actually heard the one song peaches though because i work amongst you know people who listen to pop music i thought like wow i would never voluntarily listen to it and um but you know then again like i think about people their age and you know how much i had to how much I was involuntarily subject to pop music. And, you know, that that comes right back around to what I was saying before. It's like, if I'm not engaging 
with the greater pop universe, what do I really have to say? Well, there's lots of other things to say. There's lots of other things to say. For instance, you cannot hear the album and make fun of it on a podcast. I think that is yeah. a very valuable service for people. Um, is the song Peaches, is it about the provocative Canadian pop singer, uh, Peaches? No, because she put out a song recently called Pussy Mask. That would be, yeah, that 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 that, that went about as well as you could think. But uh, no, it is, it, I, I think Peaches is a sexual metaphor. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb right there. Is Peaches the singer, is she Canadian? I, I, I have I, no idea. I went on a limb with that. I'm sorry if someone could fact check me <laughs> out in the IndieCast community. I could be wrong because Bieber's Canadian too, right? Bieber's Canadian. Canadian and Peaches, you know, Peaches, I remember her from that era of like the early 2000s where everyone was pretty much Canadian. So it, right. there's a good, there's a non-zero possibility. So I, I, I'm just Googling quickly. I just Google, oh, she's Canadian. She is Canadian. Oh, there you go. So, so good for me. So maybe Bieber is paying tribute to a fellow yeah. Canadian with this song. Yeah. It's strong, uh, man. Could have happened. Um, do we want to mention, too, that there's like a new Lana Del Rey record apparently in the works? How crazy is it that like a Lana Del Rey, an album announcement, not just a new album announcement, but one where she is basically just making a record to settle scores with critics? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, like this is no longer like the first thing I want to talk about. Now, granted... When the album comes out, if it is everything she says it is, oh my God, I cannot wait to hear her get yeah. in the ring or whatever she plans to do. Um, God bless Lana Del Rey, man. She is really looking out for us. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, this is like, we're in a real dead zone right now with music news oh and, and, and new releases. That's why we're talking about 2011. We're 2011, two, yeah. <laughs> we're doing two episodes on 2011. Also, yes. I mean... It's fun for us, and I think our listeners will enjoy it. There's like a lot of fun yeah. things to revisit, things that we haven't heard in a while. Records that are old, but in a way seem new because we haven't heard them maybe in several years. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, God bless Lana Del Rey for uh, you know announcing right after she puts out a record, Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Mm-hmm. She says she's going to put out a new record, which as you say, it, it sounds like she's setting it up as a get in the ring Guns N' Roses type move where because she says that like she was angry about things that were said about her during the long album cycle for Chemtrails Over the Country Club. So now she says that she's going to settle the score on this album. You know, Lana Del Rey and Axl Rose have hung out before. Like there was that tabloid story like where Axl like went to visit her in like the mid 2010s. Uh, um, I'll, so he's a, I'll have to take your word for that. <laughs> that's true. So he's a fan. So maybe he's being brought in as a mentor for this record as oh, an executive sick. producer of, of spite. Um, <laughs> because Lana Del Rey already has like really long songs like yes. Guns N' Roses in the usual illusion era. You know, every song is sort of like November rain or Estranged <laughs> already. So, to inject some Ooh. spite about music journalists, I think, will be great. Um, yes. Looking forward to that. Um, let's move over to our mailbag segment. Yes. Today's question comes from Brian, who I don't think he said where he was from. Brian, he did not. Brian, so wherever you are, thanks for writing in. Um, after listening to your great discussion on Animal Collective, I've been thinking back to the era of feels, meaning the <laughs> album feels and not just, you know, good good feelings, and how some of my favorite music from that time got lumped into the unfortunately titled subgenre Freak Folk. And while semi-embarrassing genre names are nothing new, it doesn't stop you 
from hearing about Chillwave and Witch House still. As an indie music media addict, I, I write for Berkeley College of Music, so I can kind of say it's work-related research. Haha. I've noticed yeah. I just don't hear the term freak folk mentioned ever, nor do I see retrospectives citing the genre's influence. The artist al- albums I'm thinking about would include Feels and Sung Tongs, both Animal Collective Records, but also Devendra Banhart's Rejoicing in the Hands and Joanna Newsom's The Milk-Eyed Mender. Any ideas on what current acts might be pulling from these influences, even if unwittingly? My guess here would be Big Thief, maybe solo Heather Trost, though she was active during Freak Folk's heyday, so maybe that doesn't count. Very curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks for reading, and thanks for making this great show. Thank you, mm. Brian, for writing in. So what are your thoughts on on Freak Folk here? Uh, you know, Brian is saying that he likes Freak Folk, but he doesn't feel like it really gets brought up now. Do we feel like it's an influence on current indie music at all you know i think it's awesome that you know if i'm to you know read between the lines you know this is a college student who uh is super into freak folk and like you know this is around the age i was when it was still happening and we'd be remiss to not mention our pal riley walker he um you know someone who loves this music his music has influenced it by it and on twitter he made just like out of nowhere a list of his top 30 freak folk albums and like it's like I mean, the first thing whenever you see like a subgenre list of like 30 to 50 albums, you have to like make the joke, what, there are 30 freak folk albums, period. And, but I mean, I I love the depth of it. And um, it's from a pretty narrow, um, you know, range. It's like more towards like the psychedelic and fried version of freak folk. Um, Some great stuff on there, you know, Espers, um, you know, Six Organs of Admittance, uh, Sunburn, Hand of the Man. I like some of this stuff. Yeah, it's really comprehensive. And he did have the Milk yeah. Mender at, at number one, yeah. by the way, which does seem yeah. like the, you know, the, the, what would you call it? The cornerstone record of, of that scene. Like the, like the one you would pull out. It's the Illmatic of uh, Freak <laughs> Folk, if you will. Yeah. Um, and with this, you know, with this sort of music, like, I think people look back on Freak Folk. You know, the name itself isn't that ridiculous, but it's more just the idea that this is the sort of thing that, you know, the indie rock narrative uh, coalesced around. And, you know, when I think back to, like, that actual era, you know, I think of what was going on at the time. You know, the Iraq War just started. Like, it was the first, you know, turn of George Bush. And I think, like, Freak Folk was in some way like a re at least the embrace of it kind of a reaction to that it's like we could let's all just kind of go back to this mystical 60s ideal of like you know kind of twee kind of arrested development sort not arrested development like kind of the concept not the show nor the band but um it makes sense as like its own sort of protest and you know i think that the milk-eyed mender being number one on riley's list is you know indicative of like where freak folks influence manifests now um, it's more from the singer songwriter sort of perspective. I think you can look at like, you know, Julie Byrne and Jessica Pratt as artists who would have very much fit into that realm. Uh, I think maybe if like Angel, like the early Angel Olsen and Wise Blood stuff might have been freak folk adjacent. But right. as far as like the the stuff that like centers around this list, like Esper, like the the bands that's like six or seven people living on a commune playing 10 minute songs with like you know, fuzz guitar solos or like animal collectives, more improvisatory stuff. Um, I think there's still like a realm for it. Like, I don't want to say King Gizzard because like, I don't think they have anything to do with each other, but no, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's, this music is still being made. It's just more on the fringes, which is probably where it belongs. I mean, it it, it really (laughs) is interesting that freak folk 
became semi-mainstream and even produced artists that I don't think... Became stars, I think. Well, you know, I think of artists like Bonnie Vare and Fleet Foxes oh, yeah. who aren't really free folk, but they had some of those elements in their music and they were able to yeah. kind of draw it into like more of a commercially palatable package. Um, mm-hmm. And they were able, obviously, to carry it forward once this scene came and went. But, I mean, I think you still see artists on the periphery that, you know, like I've called them indie jam bands, bands that sort of bridge the gap between indie music and, and jam music. Um, yeah. You know, th- th- there's groups like that that exist. And then there's also um, a lot of, you know, instrumental acoustic guitar music that's being made all the time. Yeah. You know, Yasmin Williams, her record that came out that's done really well in that realm. You know, Daniel Bachman has a record that's going to be coming out soon that I think would have been called Freak Folk um, if, if, if this were 2004 and not 2021. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even people, you know, like Riley Walker or, yeah. or Steve, Steve Gunn, you know, artists like that on their more psychedelic instrumental records, you know, they might have been lumped into that Freak Folk uh, umbrella. What I think is interesting is that, you know, and you, you said this earlier, that freak folk really kind of came out of this like idea of the 1960s, this like sort of like druggy hippie Laurel cult Canyon, vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like, you know, not even like Laurel Canyon, more like Manson family, like living on the oh. Spawn Ranch, <laughs> like that, like, like that kind of vibe. And I think in the past 15 years, like we've seen that 60s influence on indie music and, and just pop music in general, I think really fade out like i when you see artists now they tend not to go back any farther than the 70s and like even Even the 70s now yeah yeah, even the 70s now are diminished fleetwood mac only (laughs) or like you know like the late 70s punk post-punk thing oh obviously that still gets manifested but obviously now the reference points are more 80s and 90s and the explanation for that is pretty obvious we've just had a changing of generations you know if you're 22 years old right now it's possible that even your parents didn't listen to 60s music you know like Mm -hmm. being into the 60s now as a college student it sounds like our listener here is one of these people which is cool but you know being into the 60s now it would have been like being into robert johnson like when i was in my 20s and by the way i i liked (laughs) robert johnson a lot back then but you know it's the kind of music that seems really distant and you have to dig a little harder to find it you know uh because it's just not being referenced as much so i feel like that probably has also influenced how we think about freak folk because it's so tied to that 60s idea and i think the artists that are making psychedelic sounding folk records now they're not as tied to the aesthetics of the 60s like they're not dressing up in 60s clothes they don't have those types of album covers to the same degree anymore so yeah i think that's just part of the passage of time but yeah definitely go on twitter look up riley's list there's a lot of great records on there uh, yeah. worth exploring and he did a great job someone should pay him to write that story i mean i think uh <laughs> he did a great job with that i don't know how much of a market there is for a list of 30 freak folk albums but uh if there is hire riley to do it he did a great job with it um let's transition now to the meat of our episode, which is yes. a conversation about 2011. And yeah. we were inspired to do this because there are a bunch of albums that are out this week by bands that had a real moment in 2011. You have mm-hmm. The Antlers, you have Tune Yards, yep. mm-hmm. you have Real Estate, uh, you have a new 
I guess, somewhat new band called The Natural, uh, which is led mm-hmm. by Kip Berman, formerly of Pains of Being Pure at Heart. Uh, so all of these, you know, 2011 artists or artists that we might associate with that year are coming back. And instead of talking about their new records, we're going to talk about old records <laughs> from 2011. Yeah. Uh, because, again, you know, these are old records, but in some respects they are new because the records that we're, that we're going to be talking about in this episode and our next episode, some of them I haven't played in a really long time. And, mm. yeah, I, I don't know if you had this experience, Ian, but, you know, as we were getting ready to do this episode, I was looking at, like, my year-end list from 2011. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm at a point now where I don't get as excited now to make a year-end list. It's not something no. that... I get really, I used to care about it a lot. I don't care about it as much now, maybe because I realize that what I care about in the moment in a particular year is rarely how I feel later on. Like I I end up discovering new albums that I like more than the albums on my list. Um, But I was really grateful to have this 2011 Mm. list. If for nothing else, just to have a marker of how I felt in that Mm. year, it is like a diary in a way. Um, and it was really interesting just to see like, oh, that's what I cared about. And like half of these records, I don't even really remember that much. Uh, yeah. I think that's probably true for most people when they, as they listen to music. Yeah, I can't find my year-end list, um, which is a real bummer. Uh, because like I, I can remember the first, like the top four or five. And for some reason, like that Friendly Fires album, Paula was like, uh, it was in there, but otherwise, I can't remember. Uh, like, I really, really can't. And I really wish I would be able to see, like, what was number seven, you know? Was that published on uh, Pitchfork? No, that I think that was the year they stopped posting individual um, individual lists, and nor can you find the individual list from Paz and Jop either. So that has hmm. lost the, the dustbin of digital history. You know, Pitchfork, I wish they still publish individual ballads. Yeah. Because, personally, I always... I'm more interested in what specific writers think than oh, what absolutely. a publication thinks. Um, but I think publications, they have this um, vested interest in sort of protecting their institutional mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. You, you, you want to speak with one voice. You don't want to have like 25 voices that dilute the, <laughs> you know, the endorsement of, of the mothership. But personally, I like, I like seeing the individual ballots. Someone liberate Ian Cohen's ballot from 2011 before we do our next episode. <laughs> I don't you know, even know if I wanted people to see it. Uh, no, you know what? Release it. Put it out release there. Release it. Put it out yeah. there, man. Release the tapes. People need to see it. Um, <laughs> we need, yeah. We need the, the Cohen up, cut of 2011. <laughs> exactly. Need the, yeah, exactly. Um, so the first album that uh, we're going to talk about uh, was my number one album of 2011. Mm. And it's by a band that... I mentioned earlier, they have a new EP out this week. Uh, the band is Real Estate, and the album is Days. That was my number one album of, of uh, 2011. Huh. And um, it's interesting because this would not be my number one album now of 2011. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that next week. Um, but I still like this album. I still like this band. I enjoy the new EP. It's called Half a Human. I know we disagree on that. I know you yeah. are not a fan, um, but I, yeah. I enjoy that EP. And, and I've written about real estate in recent years. I am kind of shocked looking back that a band this unassuming 
was mm-hmm. like kind of zeitgeisty once upon a yeah. time. Like, like this was a top 10 album for Pitchfork. I think it came in at number nine. You know, they were written a lot about, I mean, they were considered, mm-hmm. I think, one of the most acclaimed guitar pop bands of their time. And it, it's, it's impossible for me to like imagine a band like this ending up in Pitchfork's top 10 you know, in 2021, I mean, a group that really has like no narrative, you know, other than just like writing like pretty and melodic rock songs. And, um, you know, I was thinking about 2011, like significant things that happened that year. And that's the first year that I remember people live tweeting albums as they, as everyone heard them for the first time, because, you know, before that, obviously, you know, we were, that was the age of, albums leaking all the time so people didn't really have that collective experience uh but channel orange by frank ocean which came out in the summer i believe of of 2011 that was 2012 man that was 2012 channel orange is 2012 nostalgia ultra is 2011 yes okay well anyway my point is (laughs) even though i'm talking about a different year yeah you know i i feel like that element of social media which obviously has become even bigger than the music media in terms of like how successful albums are and how they get talked about you know it's more important that people talk about you on social media than getting good reviews at this point um i wonder if that like spelled doom for bands like real estate because i feel like the cult of personality in indie music has become so important and if you're a band like real estate where again, you're a good band, but you're sort of a faceless band and mm. the, you don't have a narrative to you. If, if, if that was just the beginning of the end of that kind of band having prominence. I think that's true. And also, you know, maybe their, the quality of their music declined a little bit as well, but. Well, yes. Cause, cause days is a beautiful record. I think it's probably their best record. Oh, I think days is definitely their best. Um, and here's the thing, though, like you, you mentioned how, you know, it's tough for a band like that to become prominent uh, anymore. But when I think about like the big influential bands of the past, like, you know, the past decade, I mean, th- you have like War on Drugs and like Tame Impala as being the real like big bands as far as like the model for like how to be vibey, but also like a one man band. I'll tell you what, like. On the on a lesser level, like a less like um, popular level, like the bands that kind of fill up the middle class, real estate, Mac DeMarco, you cannot overstate how influential those bands are. That's uh, true. As far as like yeah, because like you hear, um, you hear like just you know kind of modest uh, bands that are guitar based, maybe not like indie rock, but like guitar based. And the those two bands, I I tell you, like I mean. Maybe we're, you know, real estate's going to be kind of like an REM-ish sort of thing where like people think like, man, no one really sounds like real estate anymore. But it's like, I guarantee you the influence is there. But yeah, it's hard to imagine like a band like real estate getting that popular. I was just going to say, it's interesting you bring up the Mac DeMarco, uh, Mac DeMarco in the context of real estate, because I think the difference between real estate and Mac DeMarco, musically very similar Mac DeMarco does have that cult of personality. Oh, absolutely. Aspect to him. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be... It'd be like if uh, Martin Courtney, who's the lead singer of Real Estate, if he were like way more sort of uh, vulgar and uh, outrageous, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> while still making these very pretty, pleasant pop songs, you know, yeah. then you'd be Mac DeMarco, you know. And I think yeah. that 
as much as anything. I mean, I, I think Mac DeMarco, I mean, this is another thing where we, you and I disagree. I think, he's a, I think he is a good songwriter. I think his antics sometimes mm. are a little distracting. And it feels like a little incongruous with his music, which I think is like pretty sentimental and, yeah. and straightforward. And he has this very I think that's what makes it work. Image. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, the next record we're going to talk about was your number one album of 2011, I believe. Indeed, it's Tyler the Creator's Goblin. Nah, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> actually, no, I think that was like I, I, I think I threw that at number ten for some reason. Um, but anyway, yeah. So as far as my number one, it's it was, it was kind of a one A, one B sort of thing between this album and Drake's Take Care, and I won't get into the story about why that is. Maybe next week. But um, this one is M83's Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. I think there's going to be a tremendous uh, 10-year anniversary cottage industry propping up around this one. Um, And I really look forward to seeing people who were like teenagers when this album came out right about it. Um, M83 is a band that I... There are very few bands that uh, embody everything I love about various genres of music more than M83. You know, they have that like hyperactive electronic sound, but like also very kind of shoegazy, but also they're like the enormous Smashing Pumpkins fans. And with their previous albums, um, the reason this album sound, stands out as interesting to me not is not just because I think it's an incredible record, uh, one of the last of its kind, but it's, it, it, you know, for someone like Anthony Gonzalez, who's so obsessed with 90s like bands, uh, you know, in the 90s, you would get situations where a band would make several records, you know, stoke up some hype, maybe go from a major or from an indie label to a major and then like get a hit on MTV, maybe four or five albums into their career and just blow up. And um, with Midnight City, obviously that happened with them. They had a few albums that were really well received, like they would be the kind of band that would play a festival um, you know, not close to a headliner, but like you'd be excited to see them. Um, and their albums would get reviewed really well, but never be like the number one. And then Midnight City drops and M83 becomes a superstar act. And ah, I just cannot think of an, too many other artists for whom that happened. And like the situation of of seeing like a band that, you know, you liked all of a sudden become liked by normies. <laughs> like Midnight City has 589 million uh, plays on Spotify. Uh, Wait has has 189 million, and everything else is in like the third. It's like the middle with Jimmy Eat World. Like that's kind of what uh, Midnight City is to them. That song holds up. I we have like dance parties at my house for my kids who are eight and four, and I'll occasionally <laughs> drop in an indie rock favorite just to see if they like it. And and most of the time they don't, but Midnight City Damn. like killed with them. And <laughs> it, is that the best indie pop song of the 2010s? I'm, I'm, oh. it's hard for me to think of like a better song than that. It, yeah. You know, if, if you're going to factor in impact and uh, along with quality, I feel like that song um, really I don't know. It's hard for me to think of like a better song than that from like the, yeah. and, I'll, and I'm saying indie pop. I'm not even saying indie rock. I'm going to make a distinction there. Yeah. Leaning more to the pop side, but I, maybe you could say indie rock too. I mean, I, that's definitely in the conversation, I think for, for best 
uh, songs uh, in the indie sphere of that decade. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting listening to that song, too, because you hear other things that were big in 2011. You have the... uh, the the, the uh, saxophone solo at the end, which you know is also reminiscent of like Destroyers Kaput, which I don't think we're yeah. going to be talking about in these episodes. Unfortunately, that's a great record. Um, it's also reminiscent of like the record I'm going to talk about after this in terms of mm. incorporating like a soft rock aesthetic into indie mm. music. I think M83 was a part of that as well. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that album overall, you know, you could say this about a lot of double albums that uh, the idea of it is more appealing than it is as a listening experience. I feel like there's a lot of songs on there that feel <laughs> like uh, filler to me. But oh. the peaks are unbelievable. And it's a record yeah. that I have a lot of affection for. Like, I really love it. And you know, you and I are on a similar page here. We both like excessive records. So <laughs> it's one of those things where you, you come to appreciate the excess. But yeah. you know, it is an album that I will skip a fair amount of tracks unless I'm like into like the M83 experience. If I'm going to like lock in, I remember when I was in LA five, six years ago, <laughs> driving on the sunset strip towards the ocean. And this was the album I listened to as yeah. the sun went down. Cause it, it was like, I want to listen to M83 while doing this drive. Yeah. Um, the, the album I'm going to talk about. And like I said, I feel like this is somewhat linked in, in some respects, aesthetically to the M83 record and some of the other big albums of, of uh, 2011. It's Bunny Vare by Bunny Vare. And this is an album, this was the number one album uh, for Pitchfork that year. And it was, I think, generally considered to be like the big indie rock record of 2011. This was the record that um, pushed Bunny Vare to best new artist status at the Grammys they which they won in er, they won that in early 2012 but it was for this album uh that uh, it put them like I guess on the Grammys map obviously Bunny Bear had an album before this um but it's interesting with this record because over time I had somehow like talked myself into thinking that this was my least favorite Bunny Bear album and um after revisiting it this week, I realized I was completely wrong about that. I mean, this is like, I think, it's one of those records that I feel like there's probably still a lot of affection for it out there because Bunny Vare is one of those artists that was able to transcend something that we've talked a lot on this show about that generation of like aughts era indie stars who weren't really able to make it into the next decade. And Bunny Vare yeah. is an exception to that. I would say, you know, he's as popular and influential now as he's ever been. I mean, last time I saw him, he was playing a sold out arena and you know, he's still, I feel like is one of those artists that like, if he puts out a new record, it's going to get a lot of coverage and a lot of excitement and people are going to be into it. Um, but I don't know. I I've, I've had this weird phase lately where I'm listening to like a lot of boomer rock records from the the late (laughs) eighties on cassette. Like I've been collecting cassettes. So like, you know, Paul Simon Graceland, uh, the Robbie Robertson, Daniel Lanois record, uh, you know, some, some Hornsby, things like that, and listening to it on cassette. So it's like a little warped sounding. So huh. I think I was just set up to like really reconnect with this album because this album has that aesthetic to it. It sounds like boomer rock from the 80s 
that's been warped in sort of an arty kind of way. And that ended up, I think, being a big influence on indie music in the 2011s. I mean, if you listen to songs like Beth Rest and Holocene mm. and Perth, I hear a lot of indie artists who are aspiring to like what he's doing on that record. So yeah, I don't know. Like, Have you heard this album lately? I mean, I was actually kind of blown away revisiting it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it was... I, I, I've been... I've kind of checked out on um, Bonnie Bear's stuff in time since. Like, it's almost like you were saying about Black Midi, where it's like, yeah, I can appreciate it. Do I want to listen to it? Not really. But here's the interesting thing about this particular record. Um, the names escape me, and I'm not going to, like, air out their business. But if you look kind of, like, if you look underneath the surface of, like, what's covered by big publications, there's, like, this le- layer of, like, kind of popular bands that sound exactly like Bon Iver, Bon Iver from 2011. Like you'll find, like I'm starting to hear songs that like bands that just kind of rip that off. Like that's their thing in the same way. Like people might rip off midnight city and that's their thing. Or the way people like, I'm already hearing like bands that take uh, like individual 1975 songs and just do that. (laughs) Like it's not living if it's not with you. And you know, I like this album when it came out. I love how there's like a militaristic sort of sound to like Perth. I love like the double kick drums. And um, I think the production just is so soupy and wafty. And sometimes like the vocals just drive me out of my goddamn mind. But um, it's a very unique record. Like it's it's just kind of unbelievable to see the trajectory of him going from forever for Emma forever ago to this and then to what he's done afterwards and you're right like it's so difficult to navigate you know going from indie folk sensation to like someone who's on kanye west records or someone who's like really fully embraced by you know the hip-hop and pop and r&b community um i mean and i also think that he's going to be the type person who you know 10 years from now when like the next generation of like indie kids are coming up like this is going to be a formative like listen for people who are 16 years old like this is going to be like what i don't know pavement or whatever was like where something just exists as an idea of like yeah this is what indie sounds like this is going to be one of those albums yeah it's interesting i mean i feel like his greatest achievement was that he was able to like reinvent the singer songwriter record where it wasn't just about being a guy with a guitar which is what superficially his first record is yeah. Because you know what he did with vocals and lyrics and really turning mm-hmm. the vocals into another form of music where it's not about the lyrics. Usually with singer-songwriters, it's about parsing the lyrics and connecting yeah. it to their personal narrative. I don't and know what do the that. fuck he's singing about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that was uh, his genius. And also, I think he was able to do something. I, I often compare him to like someone like Frank Ocean, where yeah. their achievement is that they can have that, again, that cult of personality where people put a lot on them just as people, but they take themselves out of the star system in a very deliberate and conscious way. Like, no one really knows what Frank Ocean is doing until he just reappears and and does something. And Justin Verdon has a very similar approach. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it, it is that idea that like you, you whisper, so you make people lean in to you, you know, yeah. that idea that like, I, I'm pretending, well, it's not pretending. I mean, I think there's a genuine sort of aversion to publicity with both of those artists, but the way that they go about it, it actually generates more mystique for them and helps 
propel them forward, I think, in a pretty impressive way. And I think that's also contributed to him sticking around, along with him just making great records. The record you're going to talk about next is a very Ian Cohen choice. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of like the ones that we've talked about thus far. Like this one, Joyce Manor's self-titled debut, you can list, it's like, you can listen to this album, like I think like four times in the time it takes to listen to Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll have more to say about this record, hint, hint, in the future. But, um, you know, with this, with this album, I bring it up, A, because it's, you know, an incredible record. But when I look back, like, it's easy to talk about something like, you know, Bon Iver or Hurry Up or Dreaming or Days in the context of like, well, what was the critical conversation around this? Like, and it's very easy to, you know, assess that. It's all there on the internet. It hasn't disappeared. But Joyce Manor, and I think this is um, true of so much stuff that surrounded it in 2011, like stuff from the punk, hardcore, emo world. I've written a lot about this stuff in retrospect, and it's almost impossible to find uh actual like interviews or reviews because either they weren't happening or b they were on websites that have just like disappeared from the internet like broken message boards and i think that like with it, it, when i look back on this record i mean it it's it was on 6131 records which for the most part like dealt in like pretty you know hardcore hardcore um but you know looking at it now it's like i i i think about this record and i wonder like, what is the Joyce Manor of 2021? Like, what are the things that we as, you know, 40-something critics are just, like, completely missing out on that the Tumblr kids are super into and will be, you know, seen as canon 10 years from now, but we're just missing out on? Because, I mean, this is, like, the first album that I can think of that people, like, associate with Tumblr. That is quoting it on Tumblr like using gifs from the live show quoting constant headache and um you know i think that it's it's just fascinating to think about like all the albums that people missed out on in the conversation like one of this uh person michael brooks who i talked to on twitter a lot he was like just listened to joyce manor for the first time and he was like yeah i kind of missed this in 2011 you know i was listening to kurt vile and you know, I think that was true in a lot of ways. Like, you know, Touche Amore released an incredible record that year. That was the first year the Wonder Years broke out. Um, Thursday released an album that was produced by Dave Fridman. And it still, like, mostly got overlooked. And so yeah. if you're an IndieCast listener, like, looking for, like, this node of music that can still sound fresh, 2011 is really... Um, you know, really an untapped resource for a lot of stuff from the hardcore world, uh, from the punk world, from the emo world. And I think 2011, you know, like I was saying earlier, I feel like that was maybe the last year before social media really started to take over. Yep. Music writing and media in general, like where, you know, like if you weren't on Twitter, it was still, I think it was still possible not to be on Twitter maybe in 2011. So you weren't <laughs> attuned to all these different conversations uh, that mm. happened around music outside of, the narratives of the music media. And I think once that ended, then it made it a lot harder to ignore a record like this, a Joyce Meyer yeah. record, which is a great record. And, but it didn't really fit with like whatever music magazines or websites thought was important in, in 2011. I mean, the downside of that is that everything is diluted now and it's hard to yes. <laughs> really lift anything up. So like there's more parody, but there's less, again, like 
stratification. It, it, it'd be I think more people would have known about Joyce Manor in 2011 if if social media were a bigger thing, or if more music critics were on social media. Certainly, I think younger people were probably talking about this amongst oh, themselves absolutely. in 2011. I mean, to answer your question about like what is the Joyce Manor of of 2021, or what's the record that's going to get ignored by critics and then be seen as important later on, I assume that it'll either be like a hyper pop record or like a K pop record, yeah. you know, which are two huge genres that still don't get written about a whole lot. And look, I don't think either one of us are the people to <laughs> nope. talk about that. I mean, but I, I want to see people who are of that scene, write about it and talk about it so I can maybe learn a thing or two and then I'll keep my mouth yeah. shut and let them talk about it. Um, but you know, I think, those genres if i were just to guess i would i would i feel like there's probably a ton of stuff that still is below the surface like we talk about you know 100 gex or we talk about like uh bts but that's pretty much it you know and there's lots of other things going on i'm sure that that gets ignored uh so yeah that's always fun to discover later on um the record i want to talk about next is an album that did get written about in 2011 and I feel like has maybe been lost to time a little bit hmm. because this band fell off the launch pad a little bit <laughs> after this record. It was their debut album. It's called The Big Roar. It's ah, a band yes. called The Joy Formidable. And hopefully people out there just did what Ian said, where you know he he gave like a recognize, like I recognize this, yes, and I have positive memories of them. I think that there's a lot of people that that enjoyed this band, I think that enjoyed this record. I've heard people argue that their song Worrying is one of the best. Oh God, that's such a good song. Rock songs of the 2010s. And yet I feel like the most lasting legacy of that song is that it was sampled in a Lonely Island track. What? Uh, you know, the, <laughs> I did not know yeah, that. <laughs> the, yeah, I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was the one with Adam Levine on it, of, of all things. Oh. And I can't remember the huh. name of the song. But yeah, they, they sampled Worrying. And uh, that uh, you know, it, the Joy Formidable. They're a Welsh band. They're a power trio. They're still active. They put out an album called Arth, A A R T H, in 2018, which I was not aware of until I just looked it up before this episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like the big roar like was their moment. A lot of people love, love this record. Again, Worrying was a hit. There's like some other great songs on that record. Again, just like a really heavy melodic a little bit shoegazy a little bit indie rock yeah band uh but also had like a real pop sense and uh they had like a great front woman who ritzy 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 brian yes and and i shouldn't say that in the past tense because this is still an active band so i'm sure she's still a great great front uh woman but uh just a really great band and this was a great record and it was a it's one of those albums that i remember hearing and thinking like oh this band their second record's gonna be great yes like they're going to be on their way. And like it is with a lot of bands, like their second album wasn't that great. And they didn't produce another song like Worrying. And they, they I think they've settled into like maybe a cult status. But um, I don't know. They're like one of the big what if stories for me. Yeah. Of 2011. Like this is a band that like I kind of wish would have been able to blow up more than they ended up blowing up. Yeah. I mean, with this band, like Worrying is such a good song. Like it is. It. It. It just towers, and they have a couple other good songs. This Ladder is Ours is another really great song. But yeah, it's like, I wonder perhaps if, you know, they had more of like a narrative thrust. If they existed maybe in 2018, they might have like a different angle. But also what I love, 
it, what I love about this band, or you know, I I, I I regret the fact that they've never really put it together, but I think that they remind me of so many bands from like the '90s where I'd like see I'd buy the buy the album or buy the CD and like maybe send it back to the used CD store because they never had like you know more than two good songs. Or in the alternative, I because I had spent seventeen dollars on it, I would like give it way more attention and like really try to dig in and you know fifteen years later say you know what. Like, uh, I don't know, this Sponge album really has a lot more bangers than you might remember. And like, not to compare, because like Sponge had like actual hits. But yeah, I think that this band was just, they were either ahead of their time or behind the times. And uh, it, you're, they, they just had such an opportunity to be this anachronistic big rock festival band. And they were, but not to the degree, like... I always hear them as like a bit of a missed opportunity, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's possible that they're more popular than some bands that we've talked about already. Uh, But I I feel like they got put into that like radio rock world where the stakes are just different. The expectations are different. It seemed like they were being primed, you know, to have hits on like X 107, (laughs) the rock in your town, you know, where instead of being encouraged to maybe go in a more adventurous direction, which I think would have suited them uh, better, you know, because I think they did have these great big hooks and they had a really shiny sound, but maybe if they could have gotten in with like a producer that could have done some things with them sonically to take them in a different direction, you know, maybe things would have ended up differently. I mean, again, this is still an active band. (laughs) Maybe they're going to put out a great record in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, I would, I would love to see this band. And again, when I saw them live, I thought they were fantastic. I'm sure they're still a great live band. Yeah. So, you know, any joy formidable heads out there, you know, write in. Tell us <laughs> if you've seen them lately. You know, I'm hoping that we can, you know, wave the flag for them again on this show. Uh, but you you kind of have a similar album in, in this regard, <laughs> like another big sounding rock band that, like, seems stuck in 2011. Yeah, so if you... <laughs> If, if you follow me on Twitter, if you follow Steve on Twitter, you know that like we've, you know, bandied about uh, the Woo Life album quite a few times. Yes. And this, oh, this is 2011 to me because on, it ties together so many things that seem antiquated now. Like first of which is like the mysterious anonymous band. Uh, they did just like kind of like, who are these guys? They wouldn't reveal their faces. They messed around with the British press a lot. They also have that, you know, British, this band is changing rock and roll sort of vibe to them. Where, um, and 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 that all kind of came together with this record, which is maybe one of the last of the uh, out of nowhere hyped indie rock bands um, at the time. Because I think when we talk about 2011 as the beginning of the 2010s with the debuts from Frank Ocean, Kendrick Lamar, James Blake, etc., uh, it's also the end of the 2000s as well, where uh, you have bands like this one, and I think about Woo Life in terms of like uh, Yuck and Youth Lagoon, both of whom released debut albums of, in 2011, which I love. And all three of them, at least the front person from that band, completely turned their back. Like they just wrote that album out of history with Woo Life. I think people kind of assumed that they were going to 
either like go the distance or just break up immediately. And they definitely broke up immediately. This album, I'll tell you what, like I've kind of jokingly called it like emo covert ops because it, you know, the vocals are like really kind of grating in a way that I love and most people don't. Uh, it's got this big boomy, like almost Appleseed cast type of production and you know the call and response vocals it sounds sort of like sunny day real estate but it's just in a way like really cool in terms of its presentation but it's also like seriously like earnest and uncool um and it just it it, and also they're kind of emo covert ops because all the great bands break up after like a year or two um but with this one um you know it I was just so shocked to see it come in at like number 199 on Pitchfork's 200 uh, best albums of the 2000, uh, 2010s list. Um, yeah, was that you? That was not me. Dude, I don't even know if I like voted for it that high. There were some people who came in like repping Woo Life way harder than I did. I did not do the blur. That's a shock. I know. Like the I was Woo Life Hive. It, it, it's like the it's like the band is mysterious and like the the Woo Life Hive is also mysterious. Yeah. Everyone is wearing a mask. Uh yeah, I mean the thing with this band too is that like when I hear this record, it reminds me of albums like in a way of like funeral or like the broken social yeah. scene record, like these big sounding indie records that were really helped by being endorsed by Pitchfork. Yeah, and um, Woo Life, I think, obviously, again, there's the Woo Life Hive out there, but they never really took off in the same way those other bands did. Of course, like you said, they broke up, so that didn't help things. Yeah. But I wonder too, like, if this was around the time like where like the Pitchfork endorsement was no longer going to be the you know golden ticket for you mm. you know that 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 shift again that i was talking about earlier from music media to social media which to me really begins around this time i guess i referenced channel or orange that was mm-hmm. 2012 but it, i i think the seeds of that were beginning in 2011 where getting a real wave of enthusiasm on social media i think started to matter more than getting a really good review from anybody mm-hmm. you know that you could uh, you know, you could get a great review from a music website, but if the enthusiasm wasn't there on social media, that band wasn't going to go anywhere. Whereas <laughs> a record could get a ho-hum review, and if people were excited about it, that record was still going to, you know, that record was going to do great. I mean, I feel like that transition is in the air. Yeah. At this time. Oh, absolutely. And um, the, the, the speaking of Woo Life, I, I, this is my favorite story about them. Like, I remember seeing them at Coachella, uh, they performed in like, I, it was 2011, I guess it must have been. And I just remember like it was 100 degrees and I would see this guy walking around uh, Coachella with like this denim jacket with Woo Life on the back. And it was definitely the guy from Woo Life. <laughs> like it was totally, like, he was wearing his Woo Life jacket in like 100 degree heat throughout the entire weekend, just walking around the grounds. Like that's, that that is my Woo life, but actually, you know what? The guy went on to make a an album under and or two under the name uh, "Love Under Heaven." There's some really good songs on that one, but I think in uh, in a way, it's just like, dude, like it's just it's woo life, but not woo life. And I think they, you know, got political and all that, and like tried to, I guess, arrange themselves around you know narratives of like 2016, 2018, or whatever. And, and I don't know, like I I just love these. Like in the same way, like M83 was 
like a 90s throwback in terms of like the one huge hit from an established indie band. Like this is more like a hype band that actually lived up to the hype and then broke up. Like I think the Woo Life life cycle was exactly what it was supposed to be, which is why <laughs> the Woo Life life cycle. Yeah, which is why I love it. Which is why I think we can talk about it so uh, fondly. Like if there was like a second or third Woo Life album, uh, you know, perhaps it wouldn't be as fun to talk about them as it is now, but. You know, shout shout out to them. Go tell fire to the mountain. We there's a song called "We Bros." I mean, what more could you pot like? D- uh, an, earn, rock, an earnest dudes rock from Woo Life. <laughs> I just love Ian. You are Woo Life for life. That's man. right, man. You are you're <laughs> flying the flag. And you know, we're coming to the end of our episode here. And what what happened is what I thought would happen is that we're running out of time. We don't have really any time for our recommendation corner segment Oops. do you just like want to briefly shout out what you were going to recommend yeah actually you know the thing that uh brought us around to coming talking about 2011 were the albums from bands that really made uh hay in that year and one of them is antlers um i never thought they'd make another record because after familiars in 2014 uh pete silverman the lead singer like he had like really crippling tinnitus and couldn't tour and just basically moved to upstate New York, thought he was going to leave music behind forever. And then Antlers uh, from Green to Gold, uh, it's actually a record that stands up with anything they've released in their career. Like Antlers, one of the most underrated and consistent uh, and interesting bands. They're back with a record that I could highly recommend. It's almost like Haydn Rock. It's very Sunday morning chill. So, Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, Sunday morning chill, Heidenreich. I love it. it uh, I'm just going to recommend something that I did. I wrote a piece this week on the 25th anniversary of Stone Temple Pilots' Tiny Music Songs from the Oh, yes. Shop. Talked it up. Uh, it was published on Thursday. Uh, there's some input from the DeLeo brothers in there. Uh, one of my favorite records of the 90s. Also wrote a lot about like albums of 1996, that being a, a year of albums from like the death throes of alternative rock. Oh, man. Albums that, in a way, sort of comment on the collapse of alt rock. And Tiny Music, I think, is one of the best examples of that. So please check that out. Yes, I'm glad you're excited about that. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends and more talk about 2011 albums next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.